Mayo Clinic presents Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. Welcome to the Always On EM podcast. My name is Venk Belamkanda, and this is the April Grand Rounds episode. We have an amazing show for you. Our presenter is Dr. Allison McGregor, who I came to know through a collaborative project that I was leading to identify potential biases in the care men and women receive in our ED. Over the several years of the project, she was gracious with her wisdom and her time in helping me to systematically and effectively examine the issue. And I'm continually inspired by her as a champion for healthcare justice in medicine. I will include a link to her website where you can learn so much more to augment her upcoming presentation. And before I turn the floor over to her and my colleague, Dr. Neha Rocker, to do a more formal introduction of her, let me take a moment. Thank you for listening to our show. My co-host, Alex Finch, and I are so grateful to each of you and would love to hear from you through Twitter, Instagram, and our email at alwaysonem at gmail.com. Please take a minute to like, comment, and follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. Shout out right now to E. Kim S., or maybe that is S. Mike, written backwards, who followed us on Podbean. We really appreciate you and all of the other follows. Without more delay, let me give the floor to a friend and colleague, Dr. Neha Rocker, who is our department's chair for faculty development, as she will provide a more detailed and personal introduction of Dr. McGregor. Thank you for listening. I can talk for hours about my very impressive and dear friends, but since I gave myself only a minute for her intro, so as not to cut into her time, I'll read her intro for those that did not meet her last night. Alison McGregor is a physician, researcher, writer, and advocate. She's really well known in, this, in the realm of sex and gender. She's a professor of emergency medicine and serves as associate dean of faculty affairs and development at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Greenville. She was the co-founder and director for the Division of Sex and Gender in Emergency Medicine at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine at Brown University, which is where we met when she was a senior resident. Her research on the roles in sex and gender um, focuses on the emergent conditions and has made her a spokesperson and advocate for women around the world. Dr. McGregor currently serves as a member of the Advisory Committee of Research on Women's Health for the Office of Research on Women's Health at the NIH. She is a co-founder of the National Organization Sex and Gender Health Collaborative and served on the advisory council to the Sex and Gender Health Education Summit Series, which is designed to establish an integrative sex and gender curriculum for current and future health professionals. She is the former director for a sex and gender two-year fellowship program and educational electives for residents and medical students at Brown. She has published over 100 peer-reviewed publications in sex, gender, diversity, medical education, and women's health. Her TED Talk, Why Medicine Often Has Dangerous Side Effects for Women, currently has over 1.7 million views, and her award-winning book, Sex Matters, How Male-Centric Medicine Endangers Women's Health and What We Can Do About It, recently won Golden Book of the Year Award, uh, Golden Book of the Year for the Stevie Awards for Women in Business. I'm happy to present Alison McGregor. My friend, nice to see everybody. Um, I had a really, really wonderful time at dinner last night, so I get to meet and chat with lots of people, so it's been very welcoming. I'm thrilled to talk about the thing I like to talk about, and I also want to thank uh, Dr. Bellam Kanda for doing this amazing collaborative work. Um, he really sort of led this in a very complicated 
uh, study um, where he was very inclusive and I was just thrilled just to be um, a part of it. So it's really nice to meet people nationally who are working in the same, same area to collaborate. Um, a picture of Dr. Rockar and I at the AMC mid-career um, thing because um, this is my conference friend, my conference buddy. So um, and we've done a lot of things, a lot of faculty development uh, type of um, uh, conferences together. And I think that that's something that's really important um, as you sort of develop into your career um, to make sure that you um, create connections, learn how to become effective leaders and mentors. And so, um, and she's my, uh, the extrovert I need at, at those, um, at those uh, things. So this is my um, official um, signature. And then this is, this is kind of where I, I say, okay, this is who, who I am. Um, so, you know, I spent about two decades now being an emergency medicine doctor myself, and that's so different from what you're learning now. It's incredible. Um, but it really allows us to see the entire breadth of, you know, health and disease. I mean, no one can really say that they can see everything. And so it's with that vantage point that I find uh, really powerful. And you can, you know, utilize that to, to really um, find your own niche and to look at some places where there's um, important um, biases at place. And so that's what I started to, to see um, is that women's uh, health across the board is, is um, fragmented and biased. Uh, and so um, this is my laybook, Sex Matters, and this is um, a textbook um, that I was very fortunate to collaborate with um, lots of emergency medicine researchers across uh, the country. And there's a sports medicine chapter that Dr. Rakar put together. Okay, this is where we really just sort of go to the beginning. We're going to make sure that we're all on the same page. So we're just going to you know, there's, there'll be an arc to this story, but, you know, I mean, we know men and women are not the same, right? So that seems to be pretty obvious, but really we, we haven't included that concept in our own um, uh, research and in, and in our caring of patients. We were told the story, right? There's still that story being told in biology class in high school, um, and so being told right now in medical school classes, um, the story of the sperm and the egg and uh, how women get together, you get either XX or XY, and that determines whether you have ovaries or testes, and then they will regulate testosterone or estrogen, and then they give you secondary sex characteristics, hair, uh, growth, maybe your voice changes, you know, and then outside of that, they're done. They've done their job, right? That's it. They just sort of, you know, were alike in every other way. But think about when you're seeing patients, right? Um, the truth is men and women are not, are not the same in the face of health and disease. 78% of all autoimmune diseases are in women. Uh, sudden cardiac death. We just had a, an example um, at the uh, football game, right? At Commotio Cordis. That's 30 times more likely to occur in men while exercising than in women. Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, more male. Heart failure with um, reduced 
I'm sorry, preserved ejection fraction is more female. Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction is more male. Uh, female fat, 40, fertile. You still remember that, right? But did we ever like decide why that's the case? Um, women have irritable bowel syndromes, migraines. I mean, so even when a disease occurs in both men or women, someone has a greater incidence or a greater severity or a different presentation of symptoms or a different response to treatment than the other. So how did we sort of miss this? How, how did this bias become integrated into our medical system? And it really dates back to how human subject research first came to, to be. And this is meant to be a grim photo because we, 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 we researched enslaved individuals. That's how we got started. So that's why there's not a lot of trust out there in, in certain populations, but World War II um, concentration camps, they were um, experimented on, Tuskegee study, syphilis, um, withheld penicillin, um, the Marion Sims did the uh, vesicovaginal fistula repair, all on enslaved women. So this is kind of um, how, how we started. So the National Research Act um, came to light, which was very important. Um, this was like 1973, and they established human subject protection, right? You need informed consent. You need an institutional review board to say that it's okay, you can do this. Um, and so that was important. It did great, great things. But at that time, they also, you know, really um, looked at women as um, uh, needed to be protected subjects as well. Because what if they got pregnant during the course of the study, right? So basically at that point in time, here's the National Research Act. Um, they said, okay, so who are we going to exclude? Prisoners? Um, we still need to know how prisoners, um, you know, how that affects their health and disease, right? Children, oh, they're just little adults, kind of see where, where a lot of this was coming. And then they thought, okay, if you're pregnant, well then, okay, well, if, you're, if you can be pregnant or if you're lactating or forget it, we'll just exclude women altogether. Um, and so what was happening then is that the evidence-based method was really, you know, was really being established. And this concept of um, simplicity was, was the, the, the mainstay, right? We wanna make sure that there's no confounders, right? We wanna be, be able to control for everything. So women, they have that menstrual cycle, it's too variable. Let's just, um, you know, let's just study men in their 20s and 30s and 40s, very stable and use that information uh, and apply it to everyone. And so what um, this was uh, just published. And um, what's really interesting is that concept that women are too variable to study is not true. Um, and they're shown this in animal studies now that actually the female animals weren't more variable than the, a lot of the male uh, animals. So, um, so again, this you know, concept where we're evolving away from, from this. But before we could do that, the, you know, our major cardiovascular trials, our major trials on stroke and cancer and infections um, were all um, done on men. And uh, so what happened was the only thing we couldn't study in men was, uh, you know, breast health for the most part or um, menstruation, menses, menopause, giving birth. So then we studied those things in women. 
And then that became the reductionist viewpoint of women's health. When we consider the word women's health, we still think OB-GYN, right? And so it, it sort of limited uh, women's uh, understanding of women's bodies and health and disease to reproductive issues only. So think about it, even just looking at the physician's health study, you know, these, this is the basis for our understanding of, of, of heart disease, right? So not only was it all men, but mostly, um, you know, male doctors, which, you know, who, who, who were those individuals at that time? This particular study showed aspirin reduced the risk of an MI by 44%. And if, I don't know if anyone's following this, but this is also not known to be very accurate either. But I'm just pointing out one thing, whereas, um, you know, that physician's health study is important. Um, it's, um, it actually like was a well-designed study. Um, it just needed the term in men, you know? So I think it's really important to look at this as um, being, what is our, re how generalizable is our research? And being very open to um, to really calling out who this is applicable to, because we have decades now of all this data collection. Um, this was my pathophys, was that Robbins, right? Oh my God, that you would give me agita. Um, yes. So all of this, right? So now I work at a medical school, and um, I took one of the books. Uh, just the other day, and I looked and I thought, God, we are still, still doing this. This is the endocrine system. Women are always just this little box of ovaries in the corner, right? This, this is, is, you know, it's, it's such a limited viewpoint. And once you recognize it that way, you can really, you know, it, it stands out. So Bill Clinton uh, did the NIH Revitalization Act around 1993, and he said, um, we should start to include women into later stages of the studies, you know? So at least there was that. Um, and this was really born out of the feminist movement, um, really showcasing that we didn't understand a lot about women's health outside their reproductive issues. So meanwhile, um, all of our medications and our understanding you know, our drugs are prescribed to everybody. How many of you here know the Ambien story? Hands, I see a shake. No, okay, cool. Yeah, I like that there's, um, I'm hoping that there's more, more and more hands. But what's really interesting is uh, Ambien or Zolpidem um, uh, was on the market for over 20 years. Um, and it's mostly prescribed to women because women are diagnosed with sleep disorders. So, um, so this was studied in men and prescribed to women. Um, and so there were um, all of these post-market surveillance reports. And that's really the only way you can discover these things after a drug has gone to the market. So it takes like a decade, it takes about a billion dollars for a drug to go from an idea to, the, to, to being prescribed. And if it was, you know, studied in men, and then it's prescribed to women, you have to wait for all of these reports to just come in. And so what happened was there was all these reports of women taking Ambien, getting in the morning uh, in their car, and then crashing their, their vehicles. So it was impaired driving. 
And so uh, they decided to look at this and um, they took a formulation of the drug and they gave it to men and they gave it to women, the same dose, and then said, okay, well, we'll wait, you know, six hours and we'll um, check serum concentrations of the drug. Um, and women had two times the serum concentrations left in their system compared to the men. So this is the first drug that the FDA um, has a sex-specific um, dosing regimen. So men are, uh, should be started off um, with 10 milligrams and women five. And that's one drug. Um, that's just one drug where we, where we know that. And honestly, I, when I see Ambien on, on, on my patients, um, you know, list, I, uh, I always look at the dose and have a conversation with them. Um, because even though the FDA did that, it's, you know, how, how, how many you take a look and you'll see. So now the NIH said, okay, listen, we can't just wait till the end of the studies, right? And then throw some women in. Uh, as of 2016, you have to include sex as a biological variable in your research application. It has to be part of the analysis. It has to be part of the, um, the generalizability. Um, and what was really critical for them is they said in cells and animals too, because they were definitely recognizing that, don't we wanna know about the mechanisms of these changes? That would be really important. And so this was a very important national um, moment um, because they, they really are the flagship, obviously, for, for our funding and our research, and they sort of set, set the course. You don't need NIH funding to have a study, um, but at least it's showcasing that um, if you do, that this is really important. And so the last piece of this part is um, we now know there's, there's, there's I want to demonstrate something else that's really critical. And this is important for when you're, you know, doing your PubMed searches, when you're, when you're seeing patients, to look at it. Okay, so here's a study that is, um, it's great because it's visual. And so what it is, is a um, um, double-blinded placebo-controlled trial of um, high-dose naltrexone. So it's like naloxone, just uh, oral, higher dose. And this researcher said, well, what if we gave that to men and women with cocaine uh, use disorder and alcohol dependence? Um, maybe that would blunt their response. Maybe that would be helpful. So the um, x-axis is time and the y-axis, this is x, right? And that's y, um, is uh, the amount of reported cocaine use. So, um, so okay, so they gave it to uh, the placebo to both men and women, and you can see they did about the same amount of cocaine use um, um, when they're on the placebo. But when they gave the study drug to men, it decreased their amount of cocaine use. But when they gave the study drug to women, it increased their amount of cocaine use. And so what would happen if this researcher pulled the results of the males and females? show no effect, exactly. So this is where it's not just about including women in the study, it's about analyzing the data separately. So this is called sex-based analysis. This is a great, um, another um, uh, example of this that was published in Nature and I like it because it's also kind of um, visual. 
So let's keep it the same um, concept, okay? So if we say A is placebo and measured variable is the amount of cocaine and B is the study drug, what you're doing when you look at a study and you say, um, oh, um, 50 subjects were enrolled, um, that you're assuming that, um, that when you pull them, that they're gonna, it's about the same. So if we were to just uncover the subjects and say, okay, how many of them are male? How many of them are female? When you don't analyze them differently, you're making this assumption that they're, they're just going to be you know, distributed evenly throughout. So they like to use some gender bending colors here. So women are blue and males are the orange, okay? So here you're making the assumption that when you gave the placebo, men and women were just scattered. When you gave the study drug, men and women are, were just scattered. But there's other options here that can happen. Um, you know, when you, when, you, when you take a look, there are other conclusions to make. So for instance, what if actually when you took the, the um, you know, when you actually revealed who was enrolled, what if women always do more cocaine? And then when you gave them the study drug, it was the opposite. Or there was no difference between the study drug or the placebo and um, men just do more cocaine use. Or maybe the placebo, it's all variable. And then when you gave the study drug, um, men did more and women did less. So this really is just showcasing that, um, you know, we, we do research to be able to make assumptions about the results. And so without looking at who was enrolled, we really can't make um, all the, the assumptions. So this is where I get excited because now the future of this is really exciting because, so think about the ambient, right? Oh, women um, metabolize it slower. Um, that's a sex difference. Great. So now it's like, well, what's the source of that sex difference, right? That's really exciting. Now we're going to figure out, um, you know, what, what, what more of the underlining, um, you know, um, metabolic um, instances, a greater understanding of science. The medical, so, um, uh, medical and social sciences are the least reproducible. So only 40% of all the medical and social sciences can be done again and reproduced. Right? So I think, wow, that's like, there's a major piece here that's missing and that this could really be it. So what is the source of that sex difference? Well, let's go back to those XX or XY chromosomes, right? Because the story is not right. It's, they're, they're not done when they give you ovaries or testes. These chromosomes are in every cell in the body. They're in the liver. They are affecting metabolism. Um, they're in the kidneys. Um, men um, a, um, have a faster clearance of um, beta blockers, of acetaminophen, of um, benzodiazepines. They're in the lungs and they're affecting the way that men um, are more susceptible to greater illness and COVID because of, of those um, chromosomes in the lung. They're in the stomach lining. Women have slower gastric emptying time, um, longer intestinal transit time. They're in the brain. You know, they affect the neuropsychiatric milieu. Um, maybe it has to do with the chromosomes. Or maybe it is those hormones that we've really um, haven't embraced. Uh, you know, this is, this is what I mean by a lot of where our science was from, is from these stable um, uh, hormone levels. But that's not really reality. Um, 
And so what are some of the differences? I, this is, I love this photo because it really shows you the difference between the follicular phase and the luteal phase. And we sort of look at this and we just think this is happening in just the vagina, right? This is, this is happening everywhere. This is the, the, the um, blood vessels that supply the brain. Um, uh, during certain parts of the menstrual cycle, you have different sensitivities to pain. You metabolize drugs differently. Um, how many of you, um, uh, you know, see women who come in with a breakthrough seizure? Pretty common, right? So yeah, of course we see that, right? So what, what are the options when you see that patient? Do you say, um, well, uh, don't drive until you can follow up with your neurologist. And most of the time we call the neurologist and they say, well, let's up their Keppra, let's increase their uh, their dose of their, their medications. When actually it's just during certain phases that it's actually been shown to decrease um, the drug level to a sub-therapeutic proportion. Okay, so why, why would this woman have to increase the dose every single day when she could just increase it during four to five days of the month, right? Why have her do all of the, um, those side effects? Um, this is also really interesting. Um, so this is looking at the effects of hormonal contraception and anti-epileptic drugs on each other. So if we look at uh, lamotrigine, right? So if someone's taking lamotrigine and then they're also on hormonal contraception, that contraception will decrease the lamotrigine by about 50%, okay? Um, that's significant. Um, if you're on oxcarbazepine and uh, now you're on hormonal contraception, that decreases your hormonal contraception by 50%. Not a small thing anymore, right? Unwanted pregnancies, this is, you know, this is really important. Why aren't we really sort of um, having these, these dose changes? Uh, as part of our Hippocrates, right? As part of our up-to-date. Um, here's where I find it really interesting is that uh, for transgender individuals that are taking gender-affirming hormone therapy, um, this paper was done by pharmacists and, um, and I love it. They did um, uh, controls and um, uh, looked at if someone was on gender-affirming hormones, either estrogen or testosterone, for over six uh, months, we used to, it was months, right? Six months, we talked about this last night, um, that their uh, lean body mass and their um, creatinine clearance changed to that of the gender that they're affirming into. Isn't that amazing? I think that's really amazing because this is the type of data that we need to collect. Their point was this should be part of our electronic medical records. So that they, you know, we, I just got a lovely tour and I saw the green scrubs and your, your pharmacists. Right? They, they could be able to look and say, I think you should change that dose to this um, because that person's taking testosterone. Um, it's really just opening up a whole new um, understanding. And then I love this example also for, for hormones. Who has a longer QT interval um, on average, men or women? Women, yeah, exactly, right? So that actually occurs at, at um, uh, adolescence. Uh, so boys and girls pre-adolescence will have about the same QT interval. And then boys get this surge of testosterone and that upregulates potassium channels all in the myocardium. And that causes it to repolarize quicker and it shortens their QT interval. 
And it's a protective effect for, for, for men until they get older and their testosterone levels start to wane. Um, and so these things are really, um, you know, important to understand because uh, women are on more prescription medications than men and they have a longer QT interval to begin with. Maybe that difference is due to the environment, right? So that's when we're talking about social cultural things like gender and race and ethnicity and disabilities. And let me tell you, this is huge. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, and not all of these are very visible. There's an assumption. People, when you're walking down the street, they're making an assumption about your gender, your race, right? It may not be accurate. But then because of that assumption, you are, um, you know, you are, um, you don't have a belt buckle for your microphone or um, if you're in uh, a woman in an um, area that wears uh, a burqa, um, what do you think her um, vitamin D level is going to be? Lower. How about skin cancer? Right. So even just that one aspect um, affects health and disease. And so this we um, the U.S. is uh, behind the, the 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 game with social cultural variables because the NIH has been so focused on sex as a biological variable. It's measurable. Um, they we they and you know um, and part of the advisory committee are are are, are really focusing this on gender now. Um, uh, how to measure it. Um, and how it affects. Um, maybe the difference is due to the environment, right? So who, who designed this? Who designed the desk that I sit at? Um, did they consider me? Um, I don't know if anyone's read um, Invisible, Invisible Woman. Um, anyway, no, okay, it's amazing. Um, anyway, but let's think about this with this one particular example, since we are ED docs, right? So the crash test dummy, um, you mentioned this last night. Yeah. Um, do you want to, what do you? Not okay. Um, so, um, you know, the crash test dummy um, was designed to create um, safety guidelines for car manufacturers, right? They have to pass those safety guidelines. And so those safety guidelines have been based on a male crash test dummy. Um, you know, up until very, very, um, it's not regular either. Um, you know, and so because of that, because of that, if you are a woman and you're sitting in the front seat, either the passenger or the driver, you're 22% more likely to have a head injury. You are 44% more likely to have a neck injury. Um, you know, the real numbers are 73% more likely to be seriously injured or 17% more likely to be killed just by being a woman and not a man sitting in the front seat. So women sit closer up to the dashboard, right? We have wider pelvic girdles. Men have stronger neck muscles. Um, and so they get less whiplash and like even in, in sports and things like that. So who designed it? Or the last part is maybe it has to do with the gender of the physician, right? Or the gender of the researcher or the observer. Um, this has been... Uh, fascinating and and this research is really really new so I, I have a couple examples so in the surgical literature um if there was a sex discordance so if um if you were um, a female patient you're cared by, by a male surgeon you had higher outcomes of death readmission complications same thing happened if you were a male patient 
and you were cared for by a female physician, you had better uh, complications, better readmissions. Um, in uh, uh, Medicare data, um, looked at this for hospitalists and said, okay, if you were um, a female physician um, and you cared for by, um, if you were a woman and you were cared for by a female uh, physician, you had better 30-day uh, mortality rates and uh, less adjusted 30-day readmission rates. Uh, we have our own too, emergency medicine. Um, if you were um, a woman and you came in for the heart attack and you had a male physician, you had um, a lower probability of survival. So does this mean that women are better physicians? No, they, 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 this is really you know, fascinating because what they're surmising is that maybe there's a communication piece. You know, women can, you know, um, uh, talk to women in, in a similar way. Men talk to men in a, in a similar way. So maybe those women, when they are given their post-op instructions and they're, they're given it from another woman who's sitting there, they might, they, they might um, tend to, to actually do those instructions. Um, couple, uh, the inpatient ones um, um, show that women are more likely to follow hospital-based guidelines. Uh, so these these are just interesting starts to, to to look at this. Like, what are the biases that we come into? Um, I think that's really interesting. So here's where you know, looking at what that source of sex difference is. This is now um, science that will be reproducible, hopefully, and responsible science. And I just think it's um, it's really it's it's fascinating. So I I dug this one up. Um, because I thought it was fun because it's because um, I get to talk to my own people. And so um, many years ago, we looked at to see, um, well, how do we do? How do emergency medicine researchers do with, with our research? Um, do we even just report the gender composition, right? Do we say 80 subjects were enrolled or do we say, you know, 25 men and, and what have you. Um, is, is it included in um, the uh, study design someplace? Are you collecting it? Um, is it one of your independent variables or is it the main point of the paper? And how do you think we did? This was 2015, I think. So it was a, it was a bit ago, but um, are we excited to see the... Um, so uh, at that time, over 20% of our research did not even say who was enrolled, uh, that just said subjects, um, never mind have it be sort of um, analyzed uh, throughout. So then that prompted the consensus conference um, that many of us uh, put together and in 2014. Um, and the consensus conference is the pre-conference for SAEM. So it was really amazing. We had over a hundred of, of top EM researchers coming together to review the literature. So we thought, well, maybe um, let's redo that. Um, we'll, so we'll see um, uh, you know, if that had any change. Um, and you can see that, um, so this was the data published in 2017, we compared it and we are improving. But um, it's still amazing to me that we don't necessarily even, um, you know, report who was who enrolled. So there's, uh, there's, there's some room for improvement, and I'm going to show you some tools about how to do that. What was the overall consequence of this? 
So we say that we practice evidence-based medicine, right? We have people up here giving lectures on it, but what is our evidence based upon when 76% of cell-based researchers still don't know what the sex of the cell that they're working on? I don't know if it's XX or XY, how that affects the outcome. 80% of animal models are still male animals. Um, yes, we are including women in human, human uh, clinical trials more than ever before, but as I mentioned, we have to now make sure that we analyze it to determine differences. We can't just sprinkle some women in there. Um, and, uh, you know, women are usually the healthcare deciders for the family. So this is what you're using when you're on shift. Um, and sometimes it just doesn't stick. And so let's look at MI. As our, as our one clinical example. And uh, women are um, uh, have higher mortality rates. They're less likely to be on evidence-based uh, treatment. Um, they're less likely to be um, you know, brought in to, by EMS because they're just, we don't know what to look at. Because this is what we're looking for. Um, this is still in our books. Um, it's still, it's, you know, in fact, um, 2022, I was asked to review the um, uh, questions and the material of a board review course, um, an international well-known board review course. And um, I, I just go right to MI. I'm like, I don't even have to look. I mean, I can tell because if it, this is the number one killer for both men and women. And if this is the, the images that you're still perpetuating, we are not going to diagnose an MI in women. But the, 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 the falsehood of women don't get heart attacks until they're postmenopausal is not accurate. It's just not accurate, right? So, you know, if we knew to look for things like this, right? If women knew that their, their fatigue and their dizziness and their nausea, how often are we thinking that this is a heart attack in women? I mean, these are, these are tough um, symptoms. So we're missing it. The triage nurse is missing it for the EKG. Uh, EMS is missing it. Um, you know, and if you think about this from a, a, a standpoint of sex-based differences, um, if you look at A, this is what we've always understood as an MI, right? You have a blocked coronary artery. Um, uh, it's very anatomical. Uh, if I squirt dye, I can see that there's a lesion there. We go in and we open it up. Right. And that's very much the way that our understanding was, because that's how men um, uh, have fat distribution. It's much more focally, where women are much more diffuse. And so if you were to squirt dye through here, the dye is going to go all the way through. OK, but you don't really know anything about how diseased that artery is, the microvascular disease, the, the, the um, lack of oxygen that, that's supplying the, the, the heart. What do you think this woman is told that she after she has her cardiac catheterization? Yeah, it's not your heart. You can go see the um, psychiatrist. You can go see the gastroenterologist. You can go see um, someone else, but your heart is fine. We've had a very anatomical viewpoint of uh, heart disease, um, um, and it's not that accurate. What about, do you have, you have um, high sensitivity troponin here, sex specific, right? So, you know, before that, we have to think about our, even our cutoffs, our reference ranges um, for, for, for disease. So just by moving the, the um, widening uh, troponin level to, to, to be positive even lower, that has um, um, led to more women being diagnosed with MI. 
right? So these are the things that, that we have to just incorporate. How many of you ask about these risk factors in your women? 2000, awesome. 2011, the American Heart Association added uh, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, preterm birth, all of these things as a risk factor for heart disease. Um, but we, I, I don't see a lot of people ask those things as you're weighing the, the these are called sex-specific risk factors that are, that are specific for women. And then I love this, um, this one is so amazing. It has so many, so many great tables. So gender differences in the effects of cardiovascular drugs. What's wrong with that title? Now that you've listened to me for 35 minutes. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Should be sex differences, right? But we didn't, you know, the terminology, it's hard when you look back because um, we didn't use the word sex until NIH started using the word sex. And so now they're two different things. And so it gets, it's been an evolution, that's for sure, of, of the vocabulary. But I just picked out one of the tables, uh, sex-related differences in drug pharmacokinetics and, you know, um, propofol. Uh, plasma propofol levels decline more rapidly in women at the end of infusion. How many of you know that when you're using propofol and you're ready to have another dose ready? right? Um, uh, glucocorticoids, uh, the oral clearance and volume of distribution of prednisolone are higher in men. Uh, and the clearance is reduced by oral contraceptives. Labetalol, labetalol concentrations are 80% higher in women. How come that's not something we talk about or in your oral boards, you know? Uh, what's, what's the sex of the patient? Okay, well then what dose do you use, right? Uh, seems like we can get this complicated, you know? And so Zolpidem here is just, the, it shows you that that's the one that we actually do have. Um, okay, quick uh, patient case. Um, I want to see if this resonates with you. So, you know, this is a woman, she's at work and she um, develops chest discomfort, right? So she doesn't say pain, she says discomfort. Her coworkers convince her to you know, go to the emergency department, right? She does not want to go, but she goes. And the doctor sees her and says, um, you look anxious. And uh, I see that anxiety is listed as one of your past medical histories. Um, and so this must be your panic attack. How about some Valium or Ativan? So we give her some Valium or Ativan and uh, doctor checks back and, and um it's, I mean, she feels like she has a glass of wine now, but you know, she just, the chest discomfort is still there. Okay, well, I also see that you're on renitidine. Uh, so this must be your GERD, right? So now you're like, okay, here's the Maalox and lidocaine. Um, and then you check back. And, um, and now she's like, well, my mouth is numb, but I don't feel any better. Um, oh, well, when I pressed, it, it was tender. So it's musculoskeletal. Here's some ibuprofen. Um, doc checks back and now she's not looking so good. So um, let me just give her some morphine. Uh, we'll get some labs, I'll get an EKG. And uh, without realizing that women have um, more respiratory depression with opiates. So now the nurse is putting her on the monitor because her SATs are going down. And uh, women are more likely to have uh, nausea and vomiting with opiates. So now you have to give her some Zofran and uh, maybe things start coming back and you get that third EKG or you get the troponin and you have high sensitivity and you're like, maybe she needs the nitroglycerin, right? 
And then what happens when someone takes nitroglycerin? They get a headache, right? So now they need, they need something else, right? So this, you know, I feel like because we haven't really understood specific pathophysiology related to women, um, and then knowing that these drugs weren't really tested in them, it's kind of like, let's just see what sticks, right? Um, you know, and this is what our patients are, are thinking. This is what this is what women are are constantly thinking that it's their anxiety that um, that it's all in their head, um, and um, you know, and this is the type of uh, reputation that you know medicine gives women, um, and so I think that um, you know what can you do. Um, this research is coming fast and furious and it's super, super fun. Um, and I, um, I have a whole elective based on this one particular um, PubMed search tool. And I use this all the time when I'm in the emergency department. So if you go to sexandgenderhealth.org and then you go to uh, resources, you'll get sent to um, a validated PubMed search tool. And uh, you can click on basic or advanced. Advanced has a couple more uh, uh, terms. Um, and it will automatically populate your PubMed with all of these validated search terms. And then you can just add whatever one you want. And so if you do acute coronary syndrome and all of these, it will comb all of the literature and then just bring up where, um, Forgot I did the reds. Um, where, um, where, where there's sex differences in acute coronary syndrome, and what's really, really fascinating is that most of this literature that comes up is all within like three to five years. It's, it's, it's not in books yet, you know, and, um, and it's just an easy way. So I have uh, students and resident electives where they will uh, come on shift and see a patient, male, female, whatever, um, and then use the search tool and, and discover something and teach it to me. Um, so, you know, it's going to be just this woman has asthma and they want to know, you know, how, uh, what are the differences in sex differences in asthma or albuterol, um, you know, whatever it's, it can, it's really, um, it's, it's a game changer. The NIH just updated their modules on their, on their website. So um, they go through all of the uh, definitions and you can get certificates um, and you can um, uh, learn things that way. The Sager guidelines, um, uh, how many of you are um, peer reviewers or editors? Yeah, right, exactly. So the Sager guidelines um, actually give you checklists as an author, as a peer reviewer, as an editor, to make sure that you can say, okay, they did this correct. Um, they in, um, included um, these things. Um, my first um, time at Mayo Clinic was for the Sex and Gender uh, Medical Education Summit at that time. Uh, we've had several since where we've made it to um, health education to broaden it to other health disciplines, but to really start to get this into medical school um, curriculum. Uh, so it's, that's challenging. There are some great books out there. This book is The Bomb. Um, how Sex and Gender Impacts Clinical Practice. Um, my uh, boss, my dean, Marjorie Jenkins, um, is uh, uh, one of the uh, main editors for that. It's 
it has all of, it, it has what to do in a clinical environment. What do you need to know? Um, it's it's worth its weight in gold for sure. Um, a lot, there's biology of sex differences. Um, uh, Journal of Women's Health publishes a lot of things. Um, I think that one of the things we should all do is, um, do you get, you get SAEM memberships? Really? No? Oh, okay. Huh. Um, well, <laughs> really? Yeah, interesting. My, um, uh, uh, my research world really um, blossomed with SAN. Um, it's where I met um, all my, you know, um, collaborators and all of the interest groups are free. So if you do join SAM, um, uh, definitely join the sex and gender um, uh, um, interest group because now there's like 233 members. I started that with a piece of paper with 25 names on it. Um, and now I'm just like, oh, look, and they're, they're all collaborating on things. And it's so fantastic. Um, and you wanted to plug something with SAM? Oh, so I sent you all an email. SA, the Sex and Gender and Emergency Medicine Interest Group if you go to SAM and doing a scavenger hunt in Austin, so if you end up going, um, and at each clue, at each site, there'll be a clue. So Allison mentioned the sex differences, sex and gender differences in cardiovascular disease. But if you think about it, there's quite a few in stroke, there's quite a few in musculoskeletal medicine. Every system has sex and gender differences that are really actually important and pertinent to our daily shift. And so there will be clues and questions at each of these sites to talk about or to quiz you on what you know about these sex and gender differences. And you know, in the book that Allison wrote, it's basically system-based. So while she plugs this clinical practice book, in her book as well, so she'll go through each system and talk about what's relevant to emergency medicine. Like, oh, if you see a patient with a knee effusion, what should you think? What's the sex and gender differences? There's a ton of work in stroke and cardiovascular medicine outside of MI, and what are the sex and gender differences? And these are all like important, kind of cool things to know, but also quite relevant to your daily practice, right? And so it's an interesting thing to just read about in your free time. Residents don't have free time, right? Um, so this is kind of like, okay, what do we, how do I remember all this stuff? Um, and so this was also um, a, uh, a paper that uh, collaboratively published. Uh, these are the cognitive steps, right? So every time you see a patient, you know, when you're presenting to your attending, what do you say? You say, oh, I've got a 32-year-old male, blah, 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 blah. And then we never think about that male or female part, right? So what's their biological sex of your patient and what's their current gender identity? Because um, that's going to give you the milieu. And you're, you know, if those things are discordant because they're trans individual, then you can look at the gender data of, of one and then the sex data of the other and, you know, make some sort of um, individualized, uh, you know, um, workup for your patient. When you figure that out, like I said, you can discover the clinical manifestations. What are the clinical manifestations? How do they differ uh, depending on who you're seeing? There's tons of limitations in this testing, okay? So one of the things I am very comfortable now doing is I tell women that I don't have the ability to test for microvascular disease today. You could, you could have that. Um, we have lots of limitations in our, under, you know, in our testing modalities. Uh, we can only do so much here in the emergency department and science can only do so much and answer so many questions. So that way they don't feel as though they're 
they're they're misstepped, you know. They don't feel as though they're being blown off. I'm saying we don't know. Um, and uh, you know, hopefully with with time and and with enrollment and in clinical trials and that sort of thing. Every time you 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 look at a blood test, think of okay, what's the sex-specific threshold? Hemoglobin. Right, we 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 forget that that has different reference ranges. Um, more and more, this is going to happen. You know, I'm still waiting for D dimer to 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 have its day in the in the sex specific threshold world. Uh, what are the dosing changes that I should understand? What are the differences in um, a side effects that I can uh, discuss with the patient? Um, I I have this this one research project I can I, for some reason I can never get um, going but sex-based differences in discharge in instructions right why don't we do that so that way it's more in, you know this is the things that you can look for um, and have it matter um, and then you just start over so it being conscious of things can mitigate bias right just by making it um, uh, you know uh, conscious really and then being like okay again, um, let's go back to do, to do that. So uh, I end with sort of a, um, you know, with what's your sphere of influence, right? So if you are a peer reviewer, you have amazing influence there. If you are doing journal club, um, making sure that when you analyze the, the journal, the paper, that you're looking to see where sex-based difference is done. Um, if you are, um, you know, it, it, whatever it is that, that we all have this, this particular um, influence, especially physicians. Um, and this is just to show you um, what happened at AAMC. I um, went for the first time in my new position and uh, I saw when, when um, the, what do you call it, when all the people are there and you're in the um, auditorium, what's that called? Um, no, no, thank you. Uh, but um, where you can get free pens. Yeah, like a fair yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so they had all of these, you know, I'm, I'm just walking through and I come across that, that same board review prep course. Um, and I went right up to them and I was like, you know, do you remember me? And, and they did. <laughs> and I said, um, the exhibit hall. That's the word I was looking for. I think I heard something similar over there. And I said, can we go to your computer? Um, and I said, yeah, I said, I want, let's, let's look up MI. I want to see MI. And, um, and they were so proud to show me that they changed the, they had a, a woman. And the same thing with the other one that they now had female um, differences. So I felt like that was a win. There were probably 60 other board review prep courses there um, that did not do this. Um, but, you know, that's where, you know, each of these little things, you can't unknow these, the, this, this information, right? Once, once you sort of realize it. And I, I like to stay humble and make sure that everybody understands that, you know, science, if, if, you, if you are a doctor, if you go into science or medicine, um, it's humbling because we're evolving. We're always evolving, right? This is what theater, you know, the, the surgical theater looked like. I wouldn't be invited here. Um, there's uh, nothing sterile. There's no uh, anesthesia, right? So how many of you would, um, uh, someone's coughing especially, not wear a mask when you're going into the patient's room, right? And we sort of, 
you know, well, now we wear gloves and now I wear masks. It's just like these changes. Um, aspirin's good, aspirin's not good. Um, you know, we're just evolving. So we wanna be kind uh, to each other and to our scientists. And um, I don't think that any of, any of this was intentional. It's just, um, you know, how, how we evolve with science and medicine. And so um, I'll, I'll end there, but I would love just to hear comments or questions. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Dr. McGregor, for the thought-provoking presentation. Folks, thank you for listening to the podcast as always. Don't miss out. Check out Dr. McGregor's website, which is in the show notes, her book, and reach out to her on social media as well so you can further the discussion and your learning on this topic. I hope it's meaningful. If you can think of how this might impact your practice or your career, we'd love to hear that. Please reach out to our show on all of those platforms we mentioned before. Don't forget to like, comment, and follow us on whatever platform you use, and come back in May when we drop the next episode of Always on EM. Thank you for listening. The Always on EM Podcast. Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds. 